electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm David Faber, and for Scott Wapner, stocks are down but holding steady ahead of the Fed minutes. What will policymakers signal about inflation and rate hikes ahead? Are 75 basis point hikes on the horizon? And what should investors do from here? We're going to discuss that and a lot more with our investment committee today. Shannon Sakosha, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, and Jim Leventhal. Let's give a quick check on the markets at this hour. We are down across all the major averages. We had seen the Nasdaq pop into positive territory a bit uh, earlier in the morning. But now, as you see, uh, down, as we said, sort of holding steady there. Uh, check the bond market as well. You can see uh, where we are in the 10-year in terms of that yield and the 288 range, of course, oil continues as well to be a key focus for us down yet again and seeing weakness uh, in energy uh, as well. want to start off with our panel this morning, of course, uh, as I just mentioned. So good to have you guys here this morning. Um, Joe, why don't you start us off and give us a sense as to where you think we are right now, what the market may be telling us. In particular, you know, this continued weakness we've seen in energy, which many say is a signal, of course, of rising conviction that we are going to have a recession, not to mention so many other commodities that have also been under pressure. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, David, great to, great to see you and work with you. Um, and I think the market has now made this pivot where previously we were pricing risk assets based on inflation expectations. Now we're pricing risk assets based on, in my view, uh, a 2022 recession. And it's it's clearly represented in the disinflationary pricing that's represented in commodities. It goes beyond oil, which in fact is approaching its 200-day moving average at 92.59. But it's also reflected in the treasury curve. You have that inversion in a two-year to a five-year and a two-year to a 10-year. And the three-month to 10-year, which a lot of economists will look at well, it's not inverted yet, but we've seen a significant decline from the level it was at in May at positive 233 basis points. Now it's only positive 98 basis points. So collectively, you throw in the U.S. dollar surging uh, to nearly a 20-year high. The expectation here is pretty clear that the euro is going to break parity with the U.S. dollar. And it. it's not just going to be Microsoft or Costco or Hewlett-Packard or Biogen that's talking about the challenges from a surging dollar. We're going to be hearing in the upcoming earnings report a lot of guidance about the negative impact of a rising dollar. So uh, the, the environment is clearly one in which the expectation for a recession, it's not 2023, it's now, it's here. It does feel that way. Shannon, you know, I mentioned, of course, we're going to have those Fed minutes. Anything in particular that you're sort of focused on or expect? Not a lot of expectation, we should point out, that we're going to learn anything particularly new. No, but I think one of the comments that continues to come out in terms of questioning the Fed's credibility over the last couple of months, David, 
is around their assessment of the economy. You know, Powell continues to say in the press conferences that the economy is strong enough to withstand the mechanism of, of interest rate hiking and quantitative tightening that is ahead of us over the next couple of months. And so if you look at the minutes, what I'm hoping clearly, you know, the pivot to 75 basis points came on the back of that CPI report. We've actually seen a core PCE report that was flat month over month since then. And there's a lot happening from an asset perspective. So what I'm really looking for in these minutes are indications of, you know, outside of the employment market, which we saw slight decline in job openings today, will obviously, to your point at the top of the show, get a lot more data in terms of jobless claims and non-farm payrolls on Friday. But what is the Fed seeing that the consumer isn't? And is this, as we've talked about on your earlier programs on this show over the course of the last couple of months, are we pushing ourselves into a recession from a sentiment perspective? Or instead, is this not demand destruction, but demand delay as we look for the Fed to perhaps pause, you know, October, November? Um, Do we get 50 basis points now? Do we get 75 and then 50 in September? Those are the big questions right now. But for me, I want to look at what the Fed feels like are those data points that it's looking at for us to determine how aggressive they need to be and what they're looking for in terms of organic demand destruction to make them potentially pause as we go into the fall. Yeah. Uh, Jim, want to get you in as well. Bring us back to the market also. And we had so many. It's funny, just on Squawk on the Street this morning in the 10 o'clock hour, Carl and I talking to a number of different guests with, as you might imagine, very different views in terms of Charles Delara thinks we're you know, potentially headed for stagflation and possibly a deep recession, certainly worried about Europe. And then you have other strategists and the like who say, nope, it's going to be a soft landing. Give me your take, Jim, again, ahead of these Fed minutes as well. Yeah, I will. And David, it's good to see you. I think in nine years, this might be the first time that we've worked together. So a real a real pleasure for me. Um, as for but me. Uh, it's also amusing because you're going to get some uh, diversity of opinion between me and Steve Weiss, who was just next to me uh, on the screen there. Uh, he and I have been uh, at opposite ends of the spectrum here. Uh, I am seeing far more positive than negative. And I think uh, Joe and Shannon gave me a lot to work with there. You know, Joe was mentioning crude oil prices. I'm really taking a look at gasoline futures. Um, RBOB, reblended oxygenated blend uh, gasoline futures are down 25% in a month. Now, that takes some time to reach the pump, uh, to reach the retail gasoline level. But over the coming weeks, you should be seeing gasoline prices coming down. And while that may not show up in June's CPI report, it eventually will. That should take a little bit of heat from the Fed as far as the fire that they're building uh, to raise interest rates. And to your original question, I think the minutes will show they're ready to go another 75 basis points this month. But after that, if gasoline futures are coming down, that's a major contributor uh, to inflation. It's also a major contributor to consumer sentiment, which we know has been terrible. So if that comes off the mat, you can see consumption picking up, you can see profits picking up. But the bottom line is this, David, right now we're in a mood where good news is bad news. You can see that in today's economic reports. The JOLT survey showed 11 million uh, job openings, which is also almost twice as many unemployed people. That's a tremendous ratio. Jobs are plentiful. And the ISM surveys index uh, came in better than expectations and clearly expansionary. The market's down today because we're in a bad news is, excuse me, a good news is bad news environment. That won't last for long, especially if inflation eases. So I'd look for better times ahead. All right. Uh, Well, Steve, I don't watch the show every day, but I watch it enough to know that you've been negative and been right. Um, 
You know, anything in, in what we've been seeing and what Jim just mentioned in terms of the collapse in some commodity prices, uh, yet still strong sort of strong numbers on the employment front and kind of a market that sort of seems to be at least trying to find a bottom in certain names, anything kind of arouse your interest or are you still negative? No, uh, the only thing that aroused my interest is Jim admitting that, uh, that I've been right and he continues to be on the wrong side of things. Look, you know, Keep in mind that both increases in rates and easing take a while to actually impact the economy. So we're only really seeing the sentiment impact the economy right now. Uh, you know, I had covered my TLT short back on the 17th. I put it out again this morning in advance of the Fed minutes. So the Fed's on a one-way path right now. I do believe you'll see stagflation. There's, there's just nothing out there that gets me, gives me any hope at all that the market will bounce. The market's why do you think still why, overvalued why, why in my stagflation? view. Yeah, why stagflation, Steve? Why do you think we're going to see that? Because I think, I, I think prices are going to stay stubbornly high. Uh, sure, they're going to come down a little bit. They'll follow commodities coming down somewhat. But you've still got major, major issues. And it's not just in the U.S. I would say that multiply them and take a look at Germany. Take a look at what's happening with the dollar, which you know, has been referenced, and take a look at Germany that's really offsides in terms of energy. So as you get into the winter months, as you get into the cold months, you're going to see those energy prices go higher again, except for the fact that you see a period of demand erosion. So with 60 to 70 percent of the U.S. economy, U.S. consumers living paycheck to paycheck, it's just not a good story. So, yes, it's sentiment that's perhaps driving consumer spending lower, but it's also the reality. I believe consumers, and I've said this before, consumers, when you saw COVID, the fears of COVID move away and you saw the economy reopen, you had this fire hose effect, similar to what happened with Peloton on the positive side, this fire hose effect with vacations, with going out to restaurants, with going back to malls and buying. And then the consumer got rid of that emotion and said, hey, you know what? I'm left with all these big bills. So while, yeah, wages have gone up somewhat, and the jolts, by the way, Jim, is not new news. There's been 10 to 11 million job openings going forward, but we're seeing job cuts by some of the biggest, most profitable companies out there. So overall, I think it continues to be a bad story. And here's what I'd say to, now look, some buyers are not the asset allocators. So the equity managers, so they've got to buy because they can only keep maybe 10 or 20 percent cash. But otherwise, if I came on this show and I said, look, I bought this brand new car. I'm going to leave it in my driveway for three years. I bought it despite knowing the fact that the price of those cars are going to come down because incentives are going to reappear. You'd say you're out of your mind. Why are you buying a car that you're not going to use for three years? So I posit this. Why are you buying stocks when you have to say in two years or three years they're going to be good buys? Why not just wait and stay in cash as most of the people that I know that have the freedom of choice of being cash or being invested are in cash? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, let's bring in uh, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, so we can get a bit of a closer look at uh, today's economic data, the Fed minutes, what we may see and expect. Steve. 
Hey, uh, David, yeah, a decent report on the service sector, the ISM non-manufacturing survey, holding up better than expected. Prices paid were down a bit, but they're still remarkably high. Employment is in contraction in this survey, but new orders and the overall index remain in growth territory, though it's well off their, high, they're well off their highs. The JOLT survey showing job openings also easing in May, but remaining remarkably high as well. There are 11.3 million job openings. That's more than one job for every unemployed worker. So labor demand remains tight, although again, off the highs. The view of a slowing but not crashing economy contrasts with the outlook in markets where some 70 basis points of tightening has now been baked out of the market in fear of recession, among other things. Just three weeks ago, the futures market priced the peak funds rate 408 for the July 2023 contract. Weaker economic data gathering recession clouds now prompting a repricing to a peak funds rate of 334 in February 2023. Once the Fed hits the peak, Markets see the Fed turning around and cutting, ending 2023 below 2.7%. Wells Fargo writing, quote, the market is pricing too much easing by the Fed in 2023. We are skeptical the Fed would do an abrupt U-turn into easing mode. The Fed minutes will be from before the market began pricing in these steep cuts and should show a Fed pretty hell-bent on fighting inflation. The question is whether softening economic data, softening economic growth, and now easing commodity prices has changed their thinking at all. David? Steve, what are we looking for on Friday uh, in terms of the employment report? And what are you expecting? I know you like to weigh in. Certainly on Squawk Box, usually you offer a prediction. Well, I stopped predicting during the uh, uh, pandemic because there were just no data that helped predict it. The, the, the numbers of the errors of the ones that everybody follows have been in the hundreds of thousands. So it became a uh, fool's errand. But the consensus now, they are, by the way, lately getting closer. And I may right. rejuvenate my model. But the consensus for Friday is 250,000, which it's weak compared to what we've been doing, which is in the 400, 500,000 range per month. But it's strong for a regular month. So I don't know if it's time to start putting normal standards on the jobs report. But 250 would be a very good number for normal times, weak for what we've been going through. How, how can people, some people say we're in a recession now. If we, if we hit 250 on Friday, how is that possible? I, I, I think it's not possible to say if the service sector is still growing, if the job market is still, uh, if we're still employing people, um, you know, it's, it's, people talk about this technical recession of two negative quarters. A recession is actually determined by the National Bureau of Economic Research. They go back and look at the data and they say, well, what happened? When did it start? And almost always they date it to the beginning of weakness in the jobs market. Uh, so it would be very difficult, I think, at this point for the NBER. It may happen next month or two months or three months down the road, but it'd be hard to say we're in one right now if the service sector is doing well and we're still uh, creating jobs. Okay. Steve, thank you. I want to bring in our market headliner, Chris Heise. He's the chief investment officer at Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. He joins us now. Good to have you this, uh, this afternoon. I was about to say this morning. That's typically my beat. Um, Chris, where do you think we stand right now in terms of what you're seeing in the market action, what you've heard from our panel uh, so far in the program? Uh, if we just looked at yesterday, David, and I know you talked a lot about this this morning, yesterday's rotation was unprecedented. Uh, we saw a lot of that during the, the actual throes of the pandemic, uh, mostly in the long-duration long growth areas. But if we just take a step back, this cycle is very different than any other cycle. And for 
obvious reasons. So I think when we look back on this, if we go forward about eight, nine months from now and we look back on this, we'll call this the post-pandemic cycle, one which is a potentially a jobful type of uh, growth recession that hurts earnings because of the post-pandemic build-out. And the big shift from goods to services is where the employment gap is. And good spending is coming down, manufacturing is harmed, and there's an energy equation going on in Europe we've never seen. So it's really hard to suggest that we're in a cycle of past. So what we're doing is, is we're getting more defensive. Uh, we're going to continue to diversify our, our multi-asset portfolios. And we're actually looking for opportunities between now and when the Fed, Fed may actually pause in the early part of 23. Last point here, David. Um, most importantly, in the next six months, Steve touched on this before. It's the, it's the Fed and its forecasts, forecasts of earnings. Earnings have to come down. And that's the last phase of a cyclical bear market. And when that happens, that's an opportune time for long-term investors to really start to look for opportunities. Right. But we've already had multiples come down in advance of or expectation that earnings are going to come down. What we're all waiting for is to see just how much. And obviously, guidance becomes such an important component of that as well. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and the big bear camp thinks that this is a classic recessionary cycle that's going to take earnings down quite a bit. What's quite a bit? 30 percent or more. Uh, in some cases, like 2000, 2002, almost 50 percent. Uh, we think it's going to be substantially less than that. A deterioration of some 10 percent might kick multiples down just a small point from there. But trying to time that, it's going to be virtually impossible. So I think you need to use capital market weakness to your advantage uh, when that happens, probably post uh, Jackson Hole. And then again, uh, sometime in the early part when the Fed ultimately starts to say, you know, we're potentially done here. Right. All right. Well, you mentioned getting more defensive. So what does that mean? Does that mean raising cash or does that mean moving into pharma, for example, uh, which has been quite a strong sector uh, this morning, not to mention much of the year? Yeah, I think when you kind of step back a little bit, if you if you have a multi-asset portfolio, some yields uh, prior to the latest move lower, uh, we're looking pretty, pretty attractive. Uh, extending duration is one way to get a little bit more defensive uh, in the fixed income world. If you're looking at a sector portfolio, you said it there, healthcare can provide you uh, less of a downside in the multiples because they have really have underperformed up to uh, recent times, or at least through the pandemic, they underperformed a lot. They give you some growth, some income. Uh, consumer staples is another area. Utilities is a mixed bag, but also is another area to consider. And then bookend that with some of the uh, what we call the world class technology areas that also will pay you a dividend and uh, have corrected substantially already. So kind of a barbell in your sector approach. And then overall, in in just in terms of cash, if you're building cash right now out of your portfolio, have it ready, have a plan ready for those two time periods to opportunistically rebalance to the upside to get ready, because we still think eventually we'll come back to the secular bull market. We're just got to get through the pain right now. Yeah, uh, well, there's a good amount of pain, uh, speaking of. Chris, thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks. All right, Shannon, I know you're making some moves in tech. You, in fact, trimmed Microsoft and bought Oracle. Tell us why. Yeah, so this is uh, just, I'll start with the Microsoft trade. This was has been our largest position for many years. This is, I think, our third trim in the last year or so uh, of the stock. And so we still like it. We think that there's a ton of opportunity for Microsoft. Um, again, we talked a little bit about, you know, the potential on tech check for the Activision 
deal to, to be perhaps in jeopardy, but um, really our term of this was based on the opportunity at Oracle. Uh, they're starting to really capture from a cloud perspective revenue from small and medium-sized businesses. Um, we believe that you know with almost 30% of revenue now in the cloud, the cloud is an area which we think is going to continue to be one where enterprise spend is focused. Again, I hear all of the arguments you know, technology enterprise spend is going to decline if we're going into a recession. But again, I think that some of this digitization that we've seen over the last several years is going to continue. And Chris actually just brought up a great point. Um, their acquisition of Cerner offers us an opportunity to also be able to play healthcare, which is an industry that absolutely is ripe for a disruption. Um, and so we like this on kind of both sides of the coin. Haven't owned Oracle in many years, um, and so happy to be back in the name with uh, some secular tailwinds for the company right now. Interesting. All right, let's, uh, let's stick with technology. The SMH, by the way, snapped a five-day losing streak. And Joe, uh, here's a name that I know pretty well from uh, having my partner Jim Cramer talk about it endlessly, NVIDIA. <laughs> why do you like it and why'd you buy it? Well, NVIDIA and AMD have been the two names in the semiconductor industry that I've owned uh, for the last couple of years. I've traded a little bit around both of them. More recently in May, I traded out of NVIDIA. Uh, yesterday, it made a 52-week low, closed very strongly on the highs. And studying my portfolio and given the environment, David, I had room to include uh, some growth, some quality growth, growth at a reasonable price, not hyper growth back in the portfolio. So it's a name that I'm comfortable with. I like the price action yesterday. I picked it up yesterday on the close. I spoke about it as a final trade yesterday afternoon. Uh, but I think that it's strategically the type of stock that you want to give consideration to here because we are making somewhat of a pivot. And I think that Chris Heinze spoke about that. It was reflected in the price action yesterday. If we're talking about a growth scare, well, you want to try and identify where you could find growth opportunities in the market and in a name like an NVIDIA and some of the more uh, reasonably priced technology names, you'll be able to uh, find those characteristics. So what, do you see yourself holding it for a while? You know, I can remember, obviously, when this yes. thing crossed the yes. $800 billion market cap threshold, to put it in perspective, it's now <laughs> below $400 billion. So how long? What do you think, Joe? I mean, is this going to be a core holding in some way for you? Well, I like I like I like the re, the contraction um, in terms of valuation. This is a stock that traded nearly with a 90 PE. Now it's uh, slightly below 40. Uh, and if you go back and you study the 12 recessions post World War II, what you'll find is that you'll see an overall median decline of 21 percent uh, for the forward PE. You'll see corporate profits contract about 15%. So NVIDIA has already done that. They've messaged in their guidance a very cautious environment. So I don't think this is a name, David, that I'm going to actively trade around. I think this is me going back into it, looking at it as an investment, filling a strategic need in the portfolio, and along with accompanying AMD, uh, providing me my semi-exposure that I'm looking for. All right. Thanks, Joe. Well, straight ahead right here, trades on some of the big analyst stock calls of the day. Halftime will be back in two minutes.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Well, let's get to a few calls of the day. First up is Netflix. It was reiterated a neutral at Barclays. The firm, though, lowered its price target. It's now 170. It had been 275. It says uh, Q2 growth may be weak despite strong content. Of course, Stranger Things has done extremely well, but they did see, if I remember, I don't have the note in front of me, uh, Shannon, uh, 2.8 million uh, fewer subscribers uh, this quarter, which would be worse than expected. I know you own the stock. I don't know if you saw the note. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I've owned this stock for a long time, David, and trimmed it multiple times over the course of the last several years, and, and I'm certainly happy that I did. I do think that this stock is in the penalty box for the next couple of quarters. Um, I think that we need to probably reset expectations for subscriber growth um, and content spend. I think this is actually an area where I'm really looking for some of the other content providers, other streaming services, um, to start to show their hand a bit, uh, because I do think that at the end of the day, Netflix will continue to have its first mover advantage advantage. And it's really just refocusing its content on things that people are continuing to, to be willing to pay for on a quarter over quarter basis. Um, and so I'm holding on to the stock, but it is certainly something that I'm looking at on a regular basis to determine if it's still worth my time. And what would make it not worth your time? Well, I think it's about the content, and I think it's about being able, also the international base. Um, you know, I think it was uh, either Joe, perhaps Joe spoke earlier in the show, you know, thinking about what's happening outside of the United States and, you know, how much discretionary spend will be available. Um, it might have been Steve, actually. I'll give him the credit for that. Uh, and so, you know, how much of that will impact their international growth story? I think it's an important one. They need to be able to continue to become a global provider of content, um, and that is yet unproven from it execution standpoint. Yeah. Uh, Jim, you know, I know you own Disney and I think Paramount as well. Netflix, obviously the worst performer by far amongst those two, but they haven't been great either. I mean, Disney's down 38 percent this year. Streaming obviously is a very important component of the business for both of those companies and certainly one that investors watch so closely in terms of the metrics. Why do you like Disney here, for example? Well, Disney in particular is a bit of a hybrid, right, David? I mean, it's got ju not just Disney Plus, but it's also got the theme park and the movies. Movies are actually coming back. But the problem with the hybrid model, at least this year, is it seems like everything is uh, is going wrong, or at least the market is perceiving that. So if we're in a recession, the market is worried that attendance at the theme parks and movies are going to go down, even though that's not what's happened. 
Um, but that's, you know, the story of the market this year is anticipating a recession that may or may not have occurred. And if it has, it seems to have, uh, you know, plenty of jobs. But I digress and I apologize for that. What's also happening with Disney and Paramount is that they're being tainted a bit by the subscriber losses at Netflix. Both Disney Plus and Paramount Plus have grown their subscriber bases over the last two quarters while Netflix has been stagnant. And it's just because it's the market leader, it sort of casts a pall on the whole industry. But ultimately, I think this is an industry in which there will be winners and losers. And I like Paramount and Disney for that reason. Yeah, I mean, price point becomes important, too, particularly if we do have a recession or even when just people are focused on reducing their budgets, Jim. I mean, Disney does still come in at a much lower price point than does Netflix, doesn't it? Are you talking about on the streaming or on the correct? You, it correct. Like you're talking on, the, about, oh. on the actual on the actual cost yeah. for its streaming service on for Disney Plus. It, it does, but I think Shannon made probably the most important point, which is that it is about content. Um, I'm not going to say something negative about Netflix, but I will say positive things about Disney, with uh, you know particularly the Marvel and the uh, Star Wars franchises, and then uh, you know with Paramount, what you've really got there is the film franchises that feed into the streaming business, and five of the top ten movies uh, this year have been Paramount films, so they're pretty in a pretty good seat to continue to grow the streaming business on the basis of the film production. Yeah. I don't know if you heard David Zaslav tell Julia earlier, he thinks they have the best content at Warner Brothers Discovery. Of course, streaming so important there. Again, that stock down 40%. All right, let's uh, get some headlines now with Seema Modi. Seema. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The man accused of spraying gunfire into a July 4th parade made his first court appearance a short time ago. Police say Robert Cremo III confessed to the mass shooting in what's described as a voluntary statement. He faces seven first-degree murder charges for the deaths that resulted from the shooting at the Highland Park, Illinois Independence Day parade. He was ordered held without bail. He could face life in prison without possibility of parole. Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone has agreed to be interviewed by the House committee investigating last year's January 6th attack on the Capitol. The panel had issued a subpoena to Cipollone last week. He'll sit for a videotaped transcribed interview sometime before Friday. He's not, however, expected to testify publicly. Legendary guitarist Carlos Santana is said to be doing well today after collapsing during a show Tuesday night in Michigan. He blamed the episode on not taking time to eat or drink before the concert. Santana is in the midst of a tour that has 21 days left, and it's not yet known whether he'll resume performing. David, back to you. Okay, Seema, thank you. Well, up next, the ETFs to watch amid this volatility. And ahead, a CNBC exclusive interview with Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer as this state battles for what is the new auto industry. Halftime returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. 
We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime. I'm Seema Modi in for Bapasani. With equities coming off their worst first half of the year in five decades, plain vanilla equity ETFs were mixed and core bond funds put on a poor showing. The iShares core U.S. aggregate bond ETF alone tumbling 10% from January through the end of June. But not everything suffered. Dividend ETFs were among the big winners, and commodities were a huge bright spot, garnering $15 billion in inflows. Let's get more on what worked in the first half and it'll work if it'll work in the second. Joining us now is Will Ryan, CEO of Granite Shares, and Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And Todd, there's a lot of talk about 2022 being the year of the dividend. Are you starting to see that play out? We are. Dividend ETFs gathered almost $50 billion in the first half of 2022. We're on pace to have a record year for dividend ETFs. We're seeing investors and advisors particularly turning towards equity income. We surveyed advisors at Vetify recently, and that's the area of focus for them. ETFs like Schwab U.S. Dividend ETF, the iShares Core High Dividend ETF HDV, these are ETFs that are holding up better than the broader market because they're providing an income support, not just capital appreciation. Got it. Will, a lot of mixed signals on the inflation front. Crude prices falling, but no sign of any relief yet at the pump. Copper and aluminum way down, and the Invesco DB Base Metals Fund, I was just looking at it, recently hitting a 52-week low. Is that potentially a hopeful sign for the bulls? It's probably a hopeful sign if you're looking for inflation to come down and particularly commodity price inflation. But for me, it's really just a reversion to the trend that began when we bottomed in 2020 when crude briefly went negative. So if you look at the, the trend line there, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, you know, from that low, it looks like some of the premium that um, was put into the market on the back of the Russia-Ukraine war has now started to come out and we're sort of reverting back to that long-term trend. Um, but certainly some markets clearly are more worried about recessionary fears than others. Um, but overall, I think the commodity market is in a good shape. Okay, Will and Todd, thank you. We'll have much more on commodities and the ETF flow down with our traders, plus Grayscale's Michael Sonnenschein. He will react to the SEC's latest rejection of his spot Bitcoin ETF and tell us what he's doing about it now. That's all ahead at 1 p.m. Eastern on etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime Report returns after this.
We are one week away from CNBC's annual America's Top States for Business Rankings. This year, the electric vehicle business is a major battleground, and that puts a spotlight on Michigan. And that is where we find our Scott Cohn with a special guest. Scott. Hi, David. Yeah, Michigan, of course, the auto capital. It's where the U.S. auto industry, the world auto industry, really started. Governor Gretchen Whitmer is trying to keep it that way. But you suffered a big blow last year when Ford announced it was going to spend $11.5 billion in, of all places, Kentucky and Tennessee. What did that mean to the state of Michigan? Well, listen, no state expects to have 100% of investment from any in particular company, especially the way that mobility has changed. But Ford has subsequently announced a $2 billion investment here. The incredible work that is being done at Michigan Central Station, downtown Detroit with Google. The future of mobility is very much happening in the state of Michigan. We can't take anything for granted, and that's why we hustle. We work harder than anybody, and we've got an incredible, unique story to tell. And you also, though, put into place some pretty generous incentives. Um, That was something that was necessary. Was it something where this state was behind the curve and had to catch up? Or, you know, tell me about that and, and why that's so important. I think the historic knock on Michigan was that we didn't have the same tools other states had to compete. We unfortunately were viewed as moving too slow and our political environment uh, was viewed as dysfunctional. Now, despite everything we've been through, the legislature and I were able to get this this incredible work done in an economic development. We moved fast, we worked together, and we sharpened our tools. And now we are competing. So whether it is LG Energy Solution that is doing incredible work on the west side of the state or General Motors $7 billion investment, there's a lot of great stuff happening here in Michigan, and we are competing. What did it take to get you and the legislature, who don't agree on a whole lot, to come together on that? Was it seeing these these big plan announcements in other states? What was it? I think that was a factor. Also, we know that as we were coming out of COVID, we cannot take automotive uh, for granted. This has been an incredible strength of this state, um, but we cannot assume that that will always be the case. So we've got to compete. And so whether it is the higher education, which is bar none, one of the best in the world, or it's community colleges or the trade skills. We've got talent here in Michigan that makes us different than anywhere else. One of the big battles that you are fighting right now, one of the many, uh, involves abortion rights. Uh, there's law in the books. You're fighting to keep that off the books and to, to uh, preserve legal abortion in the state. And you've made the economic case for that, that this is, uh, it would be a deterrent to workers if abortion were illegal. And yet we're seeing companies go to places like Ohio, Georgia, where there are bans in the book. So is that real? Is there a real economic case to be made here? And what are you hearing? Well, the whole world shifted in light of the Supreme Court decision. And as I think about the talent in my own household, my two daughters, they're 18 and 20, um, I want them to have the same rights that I've had my whole life. I want that for every woman in the state of Michigan. And that's why this is so important, because the biggest economic decision a woman will make in her lifetime is when and whether to have a child. Business knows they want women to come back into the workforce after the she session of the pandemic to get women back in the workforce. You cannot start by taking away their fundamental rights to make their own health care decisions. And yet companies are simply saying, well, we'll pay for you to go out of state. I mean, are you actually hearing from businesses that would leave Michigan if abortion were illegal? I've not heard from businesses that are saying that right now abortion remains legal and safe because we have an injunction on that 1931 law, but it's precarious. And I would love to be able to pitch Michigan as a place where every person 
has full civil rights, full bodily autonomy, and the ability to make a good quality of life here in Michigan. That's our, it's a great part of the, our, our legacy, and it's got to be a part of our future. Uh, very good. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, we appreciate it. We know it's an interesting time, to say the least, to be a governor here in Michigan or any place in the country. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. I'm glad you're here. There's a lot of good stuff happening in Michigan. Very good. David, back to you. Scott, thank you. Scott Cohn. Well, with industrials down 20% this year, many names in that group are down even more, sitting deep in bear market territory. One member of the investment committee, though, making a move in that space, and we're going to talk about it next on Halftime. Rising rates, soaring inflation, and fears about recession. It's the Great Reset for Investors. Tune in for a CNBC special this Friday at 6 p.m. Taking Stock, Second Half Playbook with Frank Holland and Josh Brown. Send us your investing questions to CNBC.advisor at CNBC.com or tweet us at hashtag CNBCAdvisor. We'll answer them live on air. Industrials, the industrials, you see them right there. Down, let's call it about 20% from the highs. A lot of names in the group, though, down even more than that. Shannon, I know that you are trimming one name. That's Honeywell. Why? Yeah, so we've had an overweight position in Honeywell for a while, David. And, you know, just looking at our position in industrials, we're also overweight in the sector versus the S&P 500. And so um, from our perspective, despite the fact that they are seeing um, orders increase, and we believe that there's going to be con- increased aviation demand over the next couple of years. We just felt like bringing it back to an even weight was the right thing to do. Again, we're, we still like the sector. It was one of our top three sectors coming into this year. We're disappointed in the performance, um, but we believe the industrial sector is, is likely to continue to benefit from this move to increase or decrease the uh, the length between uh, production and distribution, we think a lot of that production is going to come back on shore. And so U.S.-based industrials, I think, are going to be a place to be over the next couple of years. Yeah. Steve, I want to bring you back in because I haven't heard much from you. Um, you know, I mean, we've got Caterpillar trading at lows we haven't seen since November of 2020. Deer, as you might expect, also at least since January 2021. Uh, um, anything there that looks of interest to you, given your overall, obviously, view of the market? Well, you know, I like some of the companies. Honeywell's one I like. I think the CEO's phenomenal. But if you take a look at the industrials overall, they peaked going back almost a year to the date. So you had the last seven months, six months of 2021 when everything was great, when the picture, you know, when the eyeglasses you're looking at were rose-colored, rose-tinted, and yet they didn't move. So now that you're going into a recession, I think it's not the time to get involved in them. The companies are going to stop buying back stock as they were, which is my call, because they're going to need cash for the for the long winter that's ahead. So I hate to keep sounding so negative and so bearish, but you know the facts are as painful as it is for me to be bearish all the time. Uh, it's even more painful for me to lose money. So I think you'll get a better opportunity at this point to buy the industrials because bottom line said if they couldn't make it during the go-go days of when everything was looking great. How are they going to make it in terms of as stocks outperforming at this point in the economic cycle? A long winter ahead. Steve, man, you are what what are you preparing for here? Yeah, Yeah. long. How long? You know, well, first of all, I'm used to you giving the answers and, you know, the contestants (laughs) giving the questions. 
So, so let me put it this way. I think it's going to extend. I think the economic winter is going to extend past February, past March. I just think we're in a very tough time. However, at some point, the market will overshoot to the downside. And then I think maybe, you know, in five or six months, you can start buying with confidence that the worst is over, but just not yet. Ah, got it. What is a rally? Steve, thank you. Goldman is out with a, a new note on the banks, by the way, ahead of earnings next week. We're going to discuss that and how to play the financials in the second half of the year. Halftime is back in two minutes. We'll get ready for the big banks to report earnings next week. And financials, they've been struggling a bit recently. Uh, I can see it right here as well, perhaps on fears of recession and what that's going to do to their loan book. Long winter, Weiss, you're shorting the XLF. Why? Well, I'm, I'm, it's actually a hedge against my uh, Goldman and B of A positions. Look, I, I spent time with one of the co-heads of, of the investment bank, I think I mentioned this last week, of a very large investment bank. And their capital markets revenues, and it's no secret, it's across the street, are down 85 to 90 percent. So that's a fat margin business. Then when you take what's happened recently, and although this is after the quarter ended, for the most part, what's happened with the yield curve, which is one of the points of optimism that I had in the banks in terms of its flattening and even inverting in some parts, it's going to be very difficult for them to make money. And plus, as we saw, that they're not buying back as much stock as they were, nor are they increasing the dividends as they were. So, look, it's just a, a point in time right now. I'll take my hedge off at, at some point. But right now, I think it's the prudent way to go in front of earnings. Yeah. Well, Joe, let me turn to you. I know you own Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley. But no surprise, capital markets are not going to put up the numbers that we've seen in the past. Certainly, we know me sitting here at the NYSE, IPO activity, for example, has been quite uh, anemic. But is that already reflected many of these shares? Mm, I wish it were owning a lot of the names that I do. But no, David, I, d I don't think it is. And, and to Stephen's point, uh, buybacks are, are somewhat anemic relative to what expectations were coming into 2022. Um, so ownership of, of financials, it's a, it's a difficult one right now. I'll acknowledge that. And then some of my recent purchases like J.P. Morgan, they haven't been good ones, but I'm willing to ride it out uh, for better times ahead on the belief that the lessons were learned in the wake of 2008. These balance sheets for financial institutions are in much better condition and they'll be the beneficiaries once we see those better times ahead present themselves. Yeah. Jim, your view? Yeah, well, in the short run, what's been happening is there's a lot of concern about credit losses, the perception that we're in a recession or near a recession, and that that's going to cause credit losses. But again, to a point I made earlier, when you've got the labor market as strong as it is, that actually buoys credit uh, for the time being. And then when I look into 2023, and this has been central to my thesis, why I'm optimistic, by the way, not just on financials, but also industrials, which we touched on, is because of supply chain onshoring, which is an enormous force. Factories, mines, plants are being built all over this country and in Europe. That needs to be financed. Um, and it's the banks that are going to finance it. I think that important economic force is being lost as we worry about inflation that has probably peaked. Okay. Let's get some final trades, but that'll be next on Halftime. 
Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Real debate and actionable advice from the Investment Committee, plus unusual activity and more. Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, let's get final trade. Shannon, we'll start with you. UNP, Union Pacific. Uh, we talked about industrials earlier. Still think there's an opportunity here. They have a lot of pressure trying to hire conductors and engineers. They're having to pass through fuel costs, which may end up coming down. Um, and we think that total traffic growth is going to continue to grow over the next few years. Joe. Stay with healthcare as a sector, more specifically for a single stake, United Healthcare, which I own. All right, Mr. Weiss. Yep, as I mentioned earlier, I put the short on the TLT back again. I think that down here, that the risk is more towards the upside in yields, particularly with the Fed minutes coming out in the aftermath and the conversations. And finally, I see Qualcomm on that board. Jim? Yep, David, uh, you mentioned that uh, semis are starting to peak up a little bit, a lot more to go. Qualcomm hasn't been given its uh, uh, justice for the amount of diversification it's been doing in its revenue stream. That should change. All right. Well, thank you all. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Really enjoyed it. That's going to do it for us on the Halftime. Exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.